Listen, if you would, with me as I read for us from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. You can follow along on the screen if you'd like. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This, my friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul is inviting a conversation about unity, about unity within the church. Unity is a rare gem. There are perhaps few experiences and moments in life where we might say we felt truly united with the people we were around. Even more rare when we feel united, perhaps with perfect strangers. And many researchers and sociologists and psychologists throughout history have studied the unifying effect of music. It's been said that music unifies groups of folks and groups of individuals and brings them together as one, like perhaps no other experience that humanity has shared. From the earliest of historic times when perhaps tribal groups would sing their songs together, throughout history, music has helped folks survive hardships. If you think about some of the great spirituals that came from the African slaves in this country as they tried to make their way through that grave injustice. Or perhaps the protest songs that have cropped up in our history or in other spaces throughout the world. In 2004, the Secretary General of the UN was invited to introduce a lecture on why music matters for the world. And he said, music penetrates almost every part of our lives, our rest, our entertainment, our education, our worship, and throughout history, it has celebrated the triumphs and the tragedies of life. I mean, how moved were we together when we experienced the worship music we've sung already this morning? Paul knew something about the power of music as well. The, he wrote to the church at Ephesus, on house arrest. This wasn't the only time Paul was imprisoned. In Acts 16, we read about another time that he found himself actually behind bars in jail. And he was beaten and flogged as part of this imprisonment. And we read in Acts 16 that the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. 
And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, fastened their feet in the stocks, and listen to this. About midnight, Paul and Silas began praying and singing hymns. Hymns to God, and we're told the other prisoners sat and listened to them. Music helps us unite with one another. Now, our secular music, or perhaps even the songs and the hymns that we've created, have some limits. If you've ever been to a concert, maybe you sang in unison with thousands of people. I know you too is at Soldier Field tonight. There will be 40,000 Gen Xers reliving their high school days tonight at that stadium. But the minute the songs they all know together are over with, they have to go to the parking lot and try to exit a concert. And there is perhaps no place on earth where you see worse behavior than the parking lot, even of a church sometimes. Our human devices have their limits. What does an invitation to unity in Christ look like? Where a hymn or a worship song is just the beginning of what it looks like to live together as one. As I said, unity is rare. We are inclined as human beings to act as competitors instead of comrades. We find our particular tribe, we act on its behalf, sometimes we aggressively promote or protect it. Whether that is our favorite athletics team or the college that we graduated from, we might even slap the stickers of those places on the back of our car as if to say to those who share those same affinities, I'm one of you, and as if to say to everybody else, ha ha, you're not one of us. And beyond our athletic teams or our alma maters, as a country, we culturally might say we're divided between East Coast and West Coast, or those of us in the middle, the Third Coast, I think is what some say. We have North and South. We've got the world of parenthood that sometimes pits working moms and dads against stay-at-home moms and dads. We all know right now we are Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals. We have urbanites, suburbanites, folks that are rural, Catholics and Protestants, rich and poor, male and female, a variety of different skin colors and ethnic backgrounds. We have generations struggling to identify and understand each other. We have millennials and Gen Xers and boomers and the greatest generation. And I have a nine-year-old. I don't even know what the name of her generation is. But there are at least five generations right now. And among Protestant Christians, we can't seem to sort ourselves out much better. It is estimated that there are close to 10,000 10,000 Protestant denominations in the world right now. Each one of these represents a theological, racial, social, or economic rift that occurred sometime in the history of that group. Do we worship on Saturday or Sunday? Do we have a choir or a praise band? How often do we have communion? What kind of bread do we use? What do we believe about the bread that we are going to use? Are we Calvinists or Arminians? Do we speak in tongues or not? 
Division has been part of the fabric of the human experience since Cain killed Abel. Paul is writing to the community at Ephesus that is as divided and lives with the cultural divisions of their time just as we struggle with them today in our time. He's writing to a world that struggles to come together, who has sharp divisions, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor, working class and nobility, Jewish and Gentile. One of the differences at the time of Paul and the time of this letter is that those divisions were perhaps a little more obvious. You could tell by looking at a person whether they were a Jewish individual or a Gentile, whether they were slave or free. Clearly you can tell, male, female. But their divisions still had to find themselves together in the house of God. Now, if I asked you today to identify in this room who were the liberals or the conservatives or the Republicans or the Democrats, you might not be able to guess that. But what if I asked you to come to church today and before you came in the door, you were handed a t-shirt that listed your annual income, who you voted for in the last election, your opinion on certain policy, I don't know whether you think we should have left the Paris Agreement, I don't know. Pick your issue, and it was all listed on your shirt. How many of you would be able to sit next to somebody who had a very different t-shirt than you and worship well and sing together as we've been doing this morning? We might be inclined, at least I know I would, to kind of lean over and read the shirt and go, oh, I didn't know she thought that. I didn't know he voted for that person. We might even begin to wonder if he or she was even really a Christian. And we probably wouldn't be focused on the prayers and the petitions of God's people together. We would probably be focused on all the different ways we believe and live in this world. Paul is writing to a congregation that has their t-shirts on, basically. And he's inviting us to think about all of the ways that we, even today, are so divided against one another instead of united. And it mattered to Paul that we rally together as one because there is no group of people on planet Earth who can do the good that the church of Jesus Christ can do when it is united together for a common purpose. Not our individual platforms or our individual bandwagons, but the common purpose of sharing the love and grace of Jesus Christ with a world that so desperately struggles to understand it. Paul is asking us, to unite as one so that we might be an incredible witness to the world. D.A. Carson says this, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, nationality, accents, jobs, or anything else of the sort. Christians come together because they have all been loved by Jesus himself. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Natural enemies. 
who get over it and love one another for Jesus' sake. Now, at the time Paul is writing this letter, the church has two groups of people who have come together into one to worship. There is the Jewish community and the Gentile community. The Gentile community are those in the Greco-Roman world who did not grow up with an awareness of God, who dabbled in all of the religions of their time or perhaps no religion at all. They are perhaps from the Jewish perspective a bunch of heathens, a bunch of misfits, folks that have a casual disregard for religion at best. But many of them discovered the love of Jesus and started coming to church. They joined with the Jewish community who also had discovered Jesus, but who had come to the congregation with centuries of religious experience, with festivals, with food restrictions, with laws, with worship songs already, with a love for God's word. Some of them had memorized the Torah. They had a regard for the things of faith. And these two communities are merging together and trying to worship God as one. And it was messy, and they were struggling to do it. So before chapter 4, if we back up to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul has a word for the Gentiles, those who've just been folded into the history and the tradition of the faith. And he says this to them. He says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, meaning when you were outside of the faith, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel, and you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles, who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He, Jesus, came and preached peace to those of you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those of you who were near, shalom to the Jews. For through him, both groups have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. You two groups are now one. And the reason you are one, which is what Dan and Sue Ann preached last week, the reason you are one is because of the love and the grace of God. You did nothing to deserve this opportunity at unity. You are beloved children of God. And because of the love of God, you are now folded together into one community with all of your differences and your sharp divisions and your opinions and your preferences, you are now all one. That is challenging. It is challenging to be one in that way. 
Paul says you are members of the same household. You live together. You share the same space. You bump into one another. You share meals at the same table. You are citizens of the same place. You have the same passport. You have the same rights and privileges. And you are united at peace in Christ. This, when it's played out and when we get it right as the church, is the greatest witness we have. You can bang on your neighbor's door for years asking them, come with me to church. You can hand out Bibles or tracts. You can have the best coffee on the planet at your church. You can have the best choir. You can have the best worship team. You can have a beautiful sanctuary or a new building expansion. But if you are not united together, you will not win the world to Christ. The best witness we have is living together as one for the sake of Jesus and for the glory of God. To put it sharply, it is getting over ourselves and setting aside our differences so that we can be united in Christ. There is a somewhat brash British revivalist, a man named Leonard Ravenhill, who once said, you never have to advertise a fire. Everyone comes running when there's a fire. He said, likewise, if your church is on fire, you will not have to advertise it. The community will already know it. So what does coming together look like? What does it mean to live out these words of Paul? And in the passage we started with, Ephesians 4, in verse 2, he actually gives us three things. It's a beautiful way to write a sermon. Paul put the three things right there for us. And he said first this. He said, be completely humble and gentle and patient. Humble, gentle, and patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. First, Paul says, be humble. He reminds us actually in Romans 12 about humility. He says this, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Basically, let us see ourselves as God sees us, as undeserving recipients of goodness. Now, we are inclined to posture ourselves in a way that says, I maybe deserve some of what I have. I have worked hard to achieve what I have. Who I am is important and maybe more important than who you are. Because maybe, in my opinion, you didn't work as hard as I did or earn the way of life that I have earned. We wonder about that group of people who feel different to us than our group. And the human instinct is not to approach them in humility, 
but often to approach them in hostility. And a humble posture is hard. And it says, no matter how different I am than you, no matter how sharp our divisions, a humble person will say, you have something to teach me. I can learn from you. I know firsthand this is a very hard posture. There have been folks I have been so divided and so angry with at times in my life. And I have had to check myself and say, even in all of my frustration and anger toward this individual or whatever it is that I think they represent, I have had to say, I, I can learn from you. And I have had to call or email and say, can we share a meal so that you can teach me who you are and who God made you to be? This is not easy. But this is what humility does. It assumes the posture of a learner in every opportunity. And it humbles ourselves before one another because before each of us, before the, the people that we interact with, are glorious, magnificent, beautiful creatures of God. And each of us, whether we agree with one another or not, have been created in the image of God. And so let us see God in others before we see what we think they represent or what upsets or challenges us about them. Second, he says, be gentle. Treat others with tenderness, compassion. In Ephesians 5, Paul reminds us that gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. We all want to be treated gently. How many times have any of you experienced something in life where someone perhaps came down a little hard on you or was brash with you or careless with you? And maybe you've said, oh, I wish they would have gone easy on me. They didn't have to be so hard on me. And we want to be treated gently because we know we struggle and sometimes we act the way we do because maybe we're just having a hard time. And we want what we say is a little grace from others. But it's interesting how quick we are to be careless when we respond to others. And I know we've discussed this before. We live in a rapid-fire culture where if someone upsets you, you can within 30 seconds react to that by posting something on social media somewhere. We are an incredibly reactive culture, and we have the tools of technology to react quicker than we ever have before. There's a woman named Gloria Fallon who once tweeted, so much of being an adult is just not clicking the send button. It's hard to not react, to check ourselves, and to assume a gentle posture towards others. Third, be patient with one another. Now, this is not a passive patience. A passive patience goes something like this. I'm going to sit here and wait until you come around and see the world my way. This is passive patience. This is the patience that might do a little bit like this. This, of what, what Paul is saying here is an active patience. A patience that says, I'm going to choose to pursue love and unity with you, even though you may never see things my way. You may never honor who I am or what God is doing in me. You may never find yourself in a place 
to meet the need that I have from you, but I am going to actively pursue your goodness and your relationship with Christ regardless. It is hard to have patience. And folks throughout Scripture struggled just like we do. David waited so long to be king. Jacob waited and waited for Rachel. Hebrews 11, if you read that passage, unpacks character after character after character in Scripture who waited and waited and waited for the promises of God. Unity does not happen the minute we stand up and exit the building, although I really wish it did. And to be clear, I'm not talking just about unity for this group of people in this space, but I'm talking about our own unity as a congregation, but also the unity of the church universal, of the coming together of this congregation with the coming together of congregations down the street, in the city, and around the world, so that all the different ways that God has created us and shaped us come together for God's glory. So that no one can say, oh, I don't know if I want to hang out with people of faith. They seem so angry. They hardly know each other. People aren't drawn to that. But what a draw it is when people look at the community of Christ and say, I want in on that. Most people have it figured out. In a culture like ours that is so divided, somehow that group of people have figured out how to sit together and eat together and pray together and love together and overcome their differences for the glory of God. That is the one thing we all have in common. We are fiercely loved by our Creator, and we are called to love Him back. That much we have in common. Everything else, as the saying goes, is just the details. I've had a few experiences in my life where I have felt incredibly um, united with others. And at the risk of leaning uh, too much on nostalgia, when I was during, during my undergraduate at the University of Iowa, I had the privilege of being on the women's rowing team. And uh, many of you might know this, Dan Meyer was a rower. Of course, he rowed for Yale. I just rowed for a Big Ten school. So ask him some rowing stories. I think he'll agree. Rowing is one of the oldest sports in collegiate history. It has a tradition that reaches back well over 100 years, where crews from Harvard and Yale and Cambridge would race against one another. It is an absolutely beautiful and stunning sport. If you've never looked at a racing shell close up, they call the boats shells, you might not know that all of the rowers sit on tiny little seats that are on wheels, and they roll back and forth in unison, and they have their hand on an oar, and that's how they power themselves through the water. And they're all under the leadership of a person who's not rowing, but who is sitting at the front of the boat calling out the commands. And then the first seat in the boat is called the stroke seat. And the person who sits in that seat sets the pace and sets the posture for everybody else in the boat. 
The only way a racing shell moves through the water is if every single person in the boat does exactly the same thing at the same time. And this was powerful for me when I was in college because in our boat, there were women from all over the country. Some were farm girls from down the street in Iowa and others were city girls from the east and west coast. And there were women in the boat with different ethnic backgrounds, different sexual orientations. They were different majors in college. They voted differently. They thought differently. They lived differently in the world. And there were times when we had divisions against one another because of some of our differences. And the deal was, on race day, but ideally much before that, you would figure out how to set all your divisions and your differences aside and you would figure out how to row in unison together. That the only way to meet the goal was to follow the person at the front of the boat who called out the commands and the person who set the stroke so that you all put your oars in the water and pulled yourself through at the same time. And the better you were at it, the more effortless and beautiful it looked. If you see a boat zipping through the water, it almost looks easy. And inside the boat, your lungs are burning, your heart is beating out of your chest, you might not know that your palms are sometimes bleeding as you hold the oars, and everybody through the pain of being one is committed to the end goal. There's a great book called The Boys in the Boat that came out a couple years ago about the sport of rowing. And it told the story of the U.S. men's crew that in 1936 won the gold medal at the Berlin Olympics. They beat what was supposedly the best crew in the world that happened to be the picked crew from Adolf Hitler. And a bunch of ragtag American boys beat that crew because they learned how to row and move together in unity as one. And in the story, a man named Joe retells his experience in that boat. And I think it indicates to us a bit what it's like when the body of Christ figures out how to row together. The author, Daniel James Brown, says this from Joe. Daniel says, I realized that the boat to Joe was something more than just the shell or its crew. To Joe, it encompassed but transcended both. It was something mysterious and almost beyond definition. It was a shared experience, a singular thing that had unfolded in a golden sliver of time long gone, when nine good-hearted young men strove together, pulled together as one, gave everything they had for one another, bound together forever by pride and respect and love. And Joe was crying, at least in part, for the loss of that vanished moment, but much more, I think, for the sheer beauty of it. Friends, the church unified is beyond words. It is sheer beauty. It is an undefinable, unimaginable moment that just takes over your soul when the Spirit of God rushes in and we all set whatever separates us aside and we just begin to row together for the glory of God. 
And we're not worried about our own individual pursuits, but we're focused on the front of the boat, going where the God of the universe tells us to go. And we're getting there together. And it's beautiful. And it is to God's glory. My friends, I believe this is a small glimpse at what God wants for us and what Paul was getting at when he said, be united as one, be at peace with one another, be humble, and be gentle, and be patient to the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your glory, for the unity of this congregation, for the experience of your spirit moving in and through this place. Thank you that we are a community of different people. The fact that you gave us different gifts and different ways of using them in this world is to your glory. So help us, Lord, figure out how to celebrate one another and celebrate your spirit and your presence and your work in one another so that we might all sit in the same boat and race through the water together for your glory, now and forevermore. Amen.